Have you ever listened to the podcast before? I haven't. I didn't even know you had one. It's probably more popular than our games. It's Alan Girding. This is the Tuesday Night Podcast, the podcast about the stories of games we play on, around, and under our tables. I'm sitting down with a fine-looking gentleman that I just had the pleasure of seeing and talking to at KublaCon when I was in San Francisco. I thought, you know what? Your story is so good. I want a full episode of what you have to say. So Grant, let us know who you are. I am Grant Rodiak. I am a designer of board games. I also do a little bit of publishing on the side under the label Hyperbole Games. I've been an active member of the board game space for, I don't know, six, seven years now. Now, I saw you at a booth in Kubla Khan. I saw one of my favorite games, Hocus, and you were selling it for how much were you selling it for? Five dollars. Which was insane to me. So you were also selling Farmageddon, which I apologize, still have yet to play. That's fine. But what did I do in response? Just so people know I'm not making this up. You bought seven copies, four copies of Hocus and three copies of Farmageddon. But why? Why were you selling them for $5? Yeah, the MSRP is $17.99. Typically our con deal is $15. And I think we've been doing it for $15 with free shipping on our site. The thing is that unfortunately my business isn't doing terribly well and I have a lot of inventory. Inventory is an asset that is taxed by the U.S. government. Basically, I wanted to liquidate it and find good homes for it. I have been donating a lot of copies. I've been doing charitable causes for a lot of the copies, but at KublaCon, I sold them for $5, a little bit as an experiment to sort of see how many I could sell and just find good homes. And it was a really huge success. In fact, even if I weren't not doing well in the future, if I have games that are suitably small like this, I would do the same thing because I still make a small profit and I moved so many units that would be good for the marketing awareness and word of mouth anyways. I made more at KublaCon selling them for $5 than I've ever made at a con before. What? Oh my goodness. Well, I made out. I'm giving them away for gifts galore because Hocus is amazing. It's one of the most gorgeous games ever. You had a beautiful artist. You had the graphic designer, Adam McGyver, who we hired to do World Championship Russian Roulette. He does amazing work, and it's one of the most beautiful games. He does a very good job. I'm crushing on your game probably too hard, but you said you're having problems with inventory. So what's the deal? So I did a few things. Business is all about capital. Do you have the capital in order to invest in the products that you need to do and to expand and do all those things? And so last year we had basically sold through Hocus and we're like, well, it's selling. We should get more, right? And then we also decided to do Farmageddon. And I felt like through conversations with my distribution partner and taking a general temperature that Farmageddon that was completely redone, made into a better game using some of the brand awareness I'd built up with Hocus, my newsletter, and making the game beautiful again, working with Adam to sort of create a whole new visual look to pair with the all new design. Because that the way I thought I wanted to go was to keep working towards retail and to not be so reliant on crowdfunding. And so I bought a second printing of Hocus without using crowdfunding. So I spent my money to do 1500 units and that's a very small print run. But, you know, I was trying to be humble and be like, well, you know, I don't know how many more I'm going to sell. So I'll just do 1500 and that way we're still in the market. And I did a 2500 unit print run of Farmageddon also out of pocket. 
I knew that direct sales would help quite a bit and I also knew that I wanted to get some initial money and hopefully get it into people's hands before it went into retail. So I, I basically took the same tactics that I did with Kickstarter but through my own site. And so what I did was I had reviewers and previewers lined up, I had ad takeover on BoardGameGeek, I did videos, I wrote articles, I did all the stuff basically that I did for Kickstarter. I also designed a new website with a really simple purchase flow. We did a discount with wow. promos and we did free shipping. And then the thing that I thought would be really cool was, hey, you could back the game for 15 bucks and unlike a typical Kickstarter, it's already on the way, you're gonna get it in three weeks. And we did that. And the truth and the unfortunate reality is that without Kickstarter, without the Kickstarter community, without the browsing that comes from Kickstarter, all those ads, all that other stuff actually didn't really matter and didn't really move the needle. And we only sold 130 units, which was less than 10% of what we did oh, wow. for Hocus on Kickstarter. And let me put this in perspective to just really drive home how important Kickstarter is. With Druids, which is a wooden two-player abstract, this is a game that I did zero promotion for, I did zero reviews for, I put it on Kickstarter for 10 days, and for a $50 wooden game, I sold 250 units. And that's double what I did with the farm again with all that effort. Right. Earlier this year, I did Solstice, and again, this was a game that cost 18 bucks for a drive-through cards version of the game. So not the fancy overseas production, not a good deal. I did zero promotion, zero effort, put it on for 10 days and I sold 550 copies. So that's three to four times more than I did with Farmageddon. So Kickstarter is super important as far as getting the word out there, getting those early orders. And, and the other thing is I don't really have the distribution muscle. My games aren't cheap enough and I'm competing with Asmodee and just hundreds of great products. In, in some ways, it doesn't matter how good your game is if you fail to reach an audience, reach the ears of all these important people. And so basically, Hocus, the sales died between when I ordered the second printing and when the second printing arrived from China. So I had 1,500 copies of Hocus, dead. Farmageddon had a small little initial smudge after the pre-order, but then it basically died. And so I had a couple thousand games with zero momentum and I had all my capital invested in those games and the website I redesigned to try to reach more people, I basically had to cry uncle because I entered the casino, aka this small business, with so much money set aside and I put a lot of my own money down. You know, I'm the only employee, yeah. I did all the work. The, the reality is I'm not qualified or experienced to succeed in the traditional retail distribution model and I don't have a scythe or a gloomhaven hit. I just don't. You either need to have that lightning in a bottle, once in a lifetime, crazy good idea that just really catches fire, or you need to be somebody like the good folks at Renegade Games who just have that experience and have been doing it for years and they're at the trade shows and they know the people and they know how to do that. And I don't win on either of those fronts. For the meantime, I'm sort of closing down my little business. And I'm and in the meantime, I'm basically just gonna be a designer of weird little side games that I do on Kickstarter. And then long-term, I'd like to try to do this again, but I'm gonna change what products I make, how I sell them and, and just do it differently to work the skill set that I do have. So to make this really crystal clear for our listeners, what you're saying is Hyperbole Games, at least temporarily, has closed its doors and we should listen to you because you're telling us, don't do what I did, here's my mistakes. That's the lesson that you're telling us. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that it is a mistake to start off, create a publisher and be like, we're gonna be a profitable business in stores. 
I think what everyone should do is spend more time observing the industry and learning from folks who have been successful. Like you could look at Kickstarter and retailer. It is a beautiful repository of what good looks like, what bad looks like. If you're not paying attention, you're just wasting all this information. And if you want to take the next step and do a business, I think you should focus on, instead of trying to do the traditional route of, I'm gonna print 5,000 copies and I'll do 500 in a pre-order and then the rest will go through retail. You need to admit that you're probably not gonna succeed at retail. You, you need to have those connections. You need to have those relationships. You need to understand the language of that business. And that's not saying that retail is bad for us. That's not saying that retail is right. It's just, you need to understand what it takes to succeed in that area and know that you are competing with Asmodee and Renegade and Portal and Z-Man. Actually, Z-Man's owned by Asmodee. So all these great companies that do have those relationships. What I think you should do is focus on direct sales, taking advantage of platforms like Kickstarter to basically print what you need for your consumers and then put that money back into your next game and be fine with that. If you come out with a huge hit, awesome, fantastic. You are one of the lucky ones and hopefully you can turn that into something, but it's probably not gonna happen. And I think it's better to make a more humble and focused business model. So let's tie this up into a nice organized bow. Mm -hmm. You wrote a great blog post about it. You numbered them actually, like here are the number reasons. So it sounds like so far you're saying in simplified form, lesson number one, use and respect Kickstarter if you're a little guy starting out. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic tool. And, and to really show how it's changed, in 2012 when a publisher put my first game up on Kickstarter, you were only reaching direct people that knew about you. So it was not a browsing platform. And now it is a browsing platform. 80 to 90% of your backers are gonna be people who just happen to be looking around for games. It's such a good platform for, for finding new customers. The eight to 10% that you spend to use the platform is well worth it. So lesson one, use Kickstarter. Lesson two, it sounds like you said, do your homework. Yeah, put in the work. And to really drive this home, you might have this idea and you're like, I'm going to make a company. And it takes so long to do all these things that in a lot, there's no substitute for just like time and effort. You have to be willing to say in two to three years, I will accomplish this thing. And you just have to keep at it. I think a lot of people want that instant satisfaction. And that's just, it's a, it's a mistake. And you're only going to kick yourself in the face. Number three, and now I'm cheating because I'm looking at your blog post Do on it. your website, hyperbolygames.com. It's a really well-written post. It's great. <laughs> it, it is good. It's really good. I'll say number three, create a hit, which you've touched upon. <laughs> so yeah. make sure your game is really desirable, which I can't emphasize this point enough. You don't want to saturate the market with crap. And I hate to admit this, but I have one guy in the industry who owns his own business and I won't name names. I don't want to be the reason he doesn't do well, but he sent me a game, said, hey, I'm going to put this up on Kickstarter. What do you think? And I said, hey, I'm going to be really honest. This game needs a lot of work before you could launch it on Kickstarter. Here are some possibilities, you can take it. Here's some notes, but it needs a lot of overhaul. It's like, oh, well, I was just hoping you'd say something good about it because it's on Kickstarter next week. Didn't listen to me. And that really bothered me a lot because now saturation. So if someone goes on a Kickstarter and they pay for his game and they get the game, they're like, this sucks. Now that looks bad on Kickstarter, looks bad on the community and people are less likely to go ahead and buy games perhaps. I, I think something, I mean, sort of paired with this point, something that I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate is that one of the few things that you can absolutely 100% control is the quality of your product. You can control how good the game is, how good the art is, how good the rules are. 
how well it's received, you can influence that, your brand can affect that, but there's a lot of luck and, and things beyond your control at that point. And so if you are not doing your due diligence to make a great product before it leaves your hands, then man, you're really missing out on one of the few things that you can control in business. And so this guy to me is really squandering an opportunity. Well said, well said. Point four. You need some secret weapons, you say. And this one is really fascinating. Explain this one to me. Yeah, so especially when you're running a small business, you need some things that either you or your partners can bring to the table that just help you get a leg up because there are so many things you need to do. And you could pay somebody for any of these things, but if you pay everyone for all the things, at some point you're gonna be bankrupt. This is a very tight margin business and you need to find ways to help yourself. So for example, I have various connections. I live in Silicon Valley. I have various friends who do in tech. So I've been able to get pretty good websites at lower than market rates. Your website is gorgeous and smooth as butter. And it didn't help at all. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> fueled behind that, I use Tricellary, there's Shopify, so like you don't have to make stuff from scratch, you should leverage tools that exist. But the second thing is, all these companies are always trying to sell me on fulfillment and shipping, and in a lot of cases, it's a decent bargain. Like if I published, self-published a game the size of Cry Havoc, I would have to work with someone. But one of the reasons we did work with Hocus and Farmageddon is that they're very tiny. A box of 48 is a foot by a foot box. And that meant that I could warehouse them all in my own garage, which saved me a lot of money. It meant that I could yeah. fulfill them myself by packing them. And I sent out 1,700 units of Hocus in my garage in padded mailers. And I mean, I save thousands and thousands of dollars and people are like, well, time is money. And I'm like, yeah, and I want you to show me how I can save this money in a better way than just doing it myself. And I did it very quickly. Josh, who's sort of like my unofficial partner and he's the co-designer of Hocus. He is an engineer, a coder, and he created a, a basically an API with a, a website called EasyPost. And he was able to print out those 1700 labels very quickly, which also saved us money and time from having to go to the store and do that. So again, we printed all those labels out ourselves. Oh, and then another little secret weapon is that my wife's uncle owns a mailing center less than a mile from my house, which is where I was able to drop off 1700 packages. Most people- Oh, can't, how convenient. Yeah, most people can't do that. And when I need to ship stuff, I go to them and I get I get a discount for w working with them. And so that's another way that I've saved money over time, which is that it may cost my competitors $5 to ship a package and it costs me $3.50. So that's $1.50 I save on every unit shipped. It adds up quick. It does. And so like, those are some of my secret weapons. Let me tell you our secret weapons. For Tuesday night games, for Two Rooms and a Boom, our first game, first of all, we designed that all in-house. It was mm -hmm. Sean and myself. Sean did all the graphic design. And then when it comes to fulfillment for our expansion, Necroboomicon, this is our first time that we're sending it out ourselves. And when I say we, I mean Sean. But I gotta <laughs> tell you, he hates it. He's like, I, I wish we didn't sell so many because it's ruining my life. He's spending too much time. And it's funny because this expansion can literally fit into a regular envelope that you send someone. <laughs> But I think that's our only advantage. These are really good points. Well, and you look at other companies, uh, Max Timken and the guys who do Cards Against Humanity, they're all graphic designers in the background. And so right. it's very easy for them to create websites to, for promotions to sell stuff. It's why their games, like they're able to make beautiful looking games in their style. You just look at the experiences that different companies bring and how that might make them successful. Like I think Michael Mendez from Tasty Minstrel used to work in finance or banking. So he may have that's some- That's exactly, yeah. He was in financial advisor. He may have some insights and keys there. 
in the same way that you can use your life experiences to influence your design and to make your design good, you should also use your relationships, your partnerships to make your business more successful. And because basically everything in the world is against you. Again, you are competing with Asmodee. I know a lot of independent publishers like to have this whole, oh, I'm an indie badge, I'm indie. Consumers don't care. If they're spending $20... <laughs> They're going to spend $20 on the best product, the best looking product that's going to give them the value. And they don't care. And they're not going to give you a favor with your crap art because you're independent. Nobody cares. You're competing with the big boys, so you need to act like it. Nice. Well said. What's number five then? You say, don't form your business in California because you said you live in <laughs> Silicon Valley. California. So here's our end is that I originally started Tuesday Night Games under an LLC in Ohio, but Sean lives in Texas and we quickly realized, oh, shut that shit down. Remade the LLC in Texas because of the tax reasons. Texas is a very business friendly state and that's a reason a lot of people are going there. Like, So in California, we have state income tax. So I have to pay both state and federal income tax. And LLC fees are pretty high. I pay basically $1,000 a year just in LLC fees. If if you're only making thousands of dollars here and there, and then the state gets a cut at the start every year, that really adds up. Again, that, that may be one of those things that you may not have the accounting set up to succeed, to be able to navigate that. You may not live in certain states to navigate that. That was just one of those things that I think made my circumstances a little more difficult. I don't quite know what I would do differently, but it hurt. I like a lot of the other things that you say here. You mentioned customer service is everything. Value is also everything, which you've already talked about because you're competing against the big boy. And let me really drive home what, what I mean by value. I used to always think that players and consumers were obsessed with cost and price. And the reality is that they're obsessed with value way more than price. And if you look at things like Rising Sun and Gloomhaven and how much people spend on X-Wing and Armada, they don't care that they're spending hundreds of dollars on these. What they care is how much good stuff they're going to get in the box. And you could look at similar Kickstarters to Rising Sun, but with much worse value. And you could see how they've had a fraction of the success because people are like, oh, I'm not getting as much for my money. You're making me pay a lot more for not more stuff. And something that I think was really challenging for me with Hocus and with Farmageddon is that you're getting a great little game that I sincerely think that you could play for a long time. And Hocus comes with eight spell books and jokers and all this fun stuff in it. But it's really good. It is. It is. We I mean, we spent almost two years developing it. The reality is that it doesn't come with cool pieces. It's a short game and it's harder to feel a sense of value out of a smaller, shorter game. It's really important to find out how through your components and your experience that the players can feel like they're really getting something phenomenal, something special, and they're much less price sensitive than they are value sensitive. Yeah, one of the mistakes we made in our first print run of Two Rooms and a Boom, we didn't realize until people were getting it into their hands, is that nowhere on the box did we ever advertise that the cards are plastic. Which is such a huge thing. It's a huge mistake because, first of all, that's why we were so late. We went through so much blood, sweat, and tears and scrutiny because we wanted plastic cards because you manhandled the cards so much in Two yeah. Rooms and a Boom. And then reviewers were complaining about them like, these cards are really thin and they're really slippery. When we contacted a lot of the reviewers and said, they're plastic cards, so they're supposed to last forever. You can play this game in a swimming pool. It totally flipped their switch, which I didn't realize would happen, but it totally makes sense. Like, oh, these cards don't suck. They're awesome because they're plastic. It really changes the perceived value because that is the biggest expense by far when someone buys two rooms in a room. Grant, these are amazing tidbits of advice, but 
I want to get to the personal aspect. Sure. I want I want you to take me through the emotional experience, if you don't mind being vulnerable. At what point did you realize I'm gonna have to close shop? What was the emotional roller coaster? Was it a slow creep or was it just a epiphany where you said, Fudge, at this rate, I'm gonna be done in so much time. It it was pretty quick. I'm pretty pragmatic. I really value decisiveness. I'm a lead producer on a big game development team for my day job and it drives me crazy when people take weeks and weeks and weeks to make a decision that basically if you're honest, you can make the decision more quickly. When the Farmageddon pre-order was just terrible, I was like, well, that's, that's not good. And my distributor is like, no, no, ship me all the copies. We're going to sell all these by Christmas. And I was like, all right, cool. So there's still some hope. And I shipped them all stuff. And basically the the first month back, that was sort of like, that was everything. Is That first month back is how well that does determines what's going on. And it came back and it's like a fourth of the print run. And and that was that was the order for Christmas effectively. And like, I worked really hard to make sure that the print run was ready for Christmas, for Black Friday, for all that stuff. Right. And, and my distributor is like, huh, I'm really surprised. And I'm like, me too. And so at that point, it was pretty clear that it was done because if if nobody bought the pre-order and if nobody bought the, the retail order, then it basically just means that I'm sitting on inventory. And it basically had a couple months of sales, but declining. And then we had like a month that was like hilariously just like three copies. That was like oh, month three or four. And then at that point, I knew it was over. And, and hilariously, like I had people instant messaging me and somebody's like, I think you threw in the towel too quickly. You clearly have a business. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm selling these for $5 at a convention. I still have thousands of inventory. I'm not going to any other conventions. So the jig is up. It was pretty clear to me that after that first month sales came through that it was basically done. And I haven't closed the LLC yet. I'm, I'm still like winding all that down. Here's the thing, Grant. Grant, you have such a strong head on your shoulders you sound like you're not ashamed at all. Your head sounds like you're holding it up high. I mean, here's the thing. I, I worked my butt off. Josh worked his butt off. I am super proud of the two games that I released under my label. I think Farmageddon, I, I love playing Farmageddon and the people who play it, give it a chance, have generally really responded very well. We're super proud of Hocus. I think it is a very deep, unique, interesting game that does a lot of cool stuff. And again, the reviews have been very strong for it. I am proud of what I did. And looking back, had I not printed that second Hocus print run, had I just said, cool, in a couple years, maybe we'll do a Kickstarter with an expansion. Had I kickstarted Farmageddon, we would have sold, I believe, 1,500 units on Kickstarter easily, and then I would have been fine. So I made a couple really big missteps that basically consumed my money. And in hindsight, it's like, oh, well, and the problem is that the money is gone now. Right. The money is gone. And so I don't have the way to quite spin it up. And right. In a couple of years, maybe I'll come back. Maybe I'll do it differently. I'll do it using these lessons. And the thing is, is that I have to recognize where I messed up and I have to own that. It feels bad to fail. And it also feels bad sometimes to see people who make games that you really don't like or... Oh, yeah. You don't like how they interface with the world and they're just like killing it. And you're like, (sighs) yeah. Uh, And yeah, for instance, that one previous example I gave, it did decent on Kickstarter. It didn't rock Kickstarter, but it had a solid it made its funding and it made a stretch goal or two. And I couldn't help but think, no, someone should tell these people. But I wasn't going to blast this guy and say, hey, 
This game's not good. It is what it is. And and I think it'd be way worse for me to go, no, the next one's going to be good and then just keep smashing into right. that. Well, I think that's a beautiful thing that you're saying, Grant, is because you did everything the best that you possibly could and you made two honest mistakes. And you're not trying to make up for the mistakes. You're not saying that you didn't make those mistakes. But I think the reason you come off as so emotionally calm and level-headed is because you have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing because of all the effort. And I think that's almost a lesson that translates in life in general, not just in this niche situation of running a tabletop company. If you're gonna do something, do it. And that way you leave nothing to regret. So yeah, you made some mistakes. You wish you didn't make those mistakes, but you did them with the knowledge that you had and the effort and efficiency and the passion that you have for the industry. Well, what, what, one more quick thing I want to add is I, Please. I think a part of the reason is that I have closure because I know what happened. I'm pretty clear on why I failed. And it was kind of interesting to see that like a lot of very smart, established publishers and industry people commented on my article or reached out to me to basically confirm that, yep, that's got a feeling that like, hey, I at least analyzed it correctly. Something that I've seen a lot of people do when they close down their blog or they close down their podcast or they close down their company is they really want to blame somebody else. They want to blame the Illuminati of board games didn't let me in or you know right or, or, you Tom know. Vassell gave me a bad review well, well even like there's like I've seen some people have this sort of deep state theory that there's like some Illuminatus that controls what podcasts succeed and which ones don't or what have you and I, I think if I was pointing the finger at somebody else I wouldn't get closure from that and then I could just sit there and let that fester and the thing is, is I could point the finger at myself and be like, oh, I screwed up here. I misallocated my capital here. I tried to pursue retail when I wasn't geared for success there. Like I don't have the experience, the knowledge to succeed there. And so I have closure that allows me to leave. Like I'm sad, failing sucks. I'm 33, I, I work a day job, I'm, I'm middle management, I have to deal with failure there, I have to deal with failure now in my side business. Dealing with publishers is immensely frustrating, trying to get anybody to respond to anything, to even just give me a no. I can't tell you how often I submit games and I have to go crawl to them six months later and be like, can you at least give me the official rejection, please? Failure is constant. And at least here, I have very clean closure and I'm able to woosah and breathe and be like, well, I know what went wrong, it's on me, and I can accept that. You have that sense of autonomy and that internal locus of control because I'm a psychology professor. I'm not sure if you knew that as a I didn't. day job. Yeah. And what you're exhibiting really does translate into every aspect of life is that if you have an internal locus of control, no matter what shitty thing happens to you in life, if you say, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter that the hand of fate rolled the dice and it was some freak storm that caused my tragedy. If you still ask yourself, what can I do in the future to make sure that this doesn't happen again? You have exactly what you're talking about, closure and this sense of autonomy, this control of your destiny. I mean, it still sucks. It's still sad, but you still have the confidence to move on into the future instead of displacing blame. Really well said, Grant. Better than I just said it, in fact. I do want to tell you something. The reason that I have not played Farmageddon is pretty cool because while I was at Kublai Khan, I bought all the copies of Hocus I could and I bought Farmageddon and gave each copy to my cousins with whom I stay. My cousin Amanda and cousin Chuck. And I said, hey, cool games. I love Hocus. I'm looking forward to playing Farmageddon. I opened up Hocus. We started playing. 
And then we played for the next five freaking hours, man. We were just playing hand after hand, game after game, again and again, because they want to try all the different schools of magic. <laughs> <laughs> Grant, I bet you've given the sales pitch for Hocus a ton. Yeah. But can you give a pitch in a minute if you're in an elevator? Yeah, tell me when to start. All right. Well, you're about to enter the elevator now. So with Hocus, we took the idea of Texas Hold'em Poker, but tried to create a completely new game and then mix it with some of the fun of magic and modern game design. We reversed it from a game about random cards and probability that you bet against to having a full hand of cards and you dictate play. You play cards to the community, you play cards to your, your pocket, and you play cards to the pot. And then you add on eight different asymmetric spells here. So what you get is a really deep strategic game that plays with about two to five players in about half an hour. So instead of cards randomly coming out to the middle and you betting against that, you choose how the game evolves. So it's a very interactive game, but it's not a conflict or an aggressive interactive game. It's about reading your opponent, seeing what opportunities you have in your hand and trying to influence the board to come out ahead. And plays beautifully with five, two, three, or four. Wow, well done. I think the biggest sell is it's Texas Hold'em with magic ability. So you can influence mm -hmm. the pot or what are they called? The flop, the river, the... Yeah, you build that. Yeah, because typically those cards come out randomly and you're like, well, didn't get the six I wanted. And then you basically choose to bet to scare people away or you bluff or you just hope that maybe your pair is good enough. But here... You could look in your hand and like, let's say I have three, five, seven. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of close to a straight. And I throw that three down and then you throw a four down. And I'm like, all right, now I just need to get somebody else with a six to think that they have it. And then maybe you have the six and then you're willing to share it with me. So we both build that and then build the pot. It's so good. <laughs> and then somebody else sees it and they're like, screw them. I don't have that straight. And then they put a 10 down to completely block it. And they also have two other tins in their hand, which means they can make a three of a kind. So you and I were chasing a straight that's now dead and we're completely screwed. So <laughs> he's then going to have to build that pot and we're going to go elsewhere because we're like, screw that. We can't win there. Something that I think is really fun about the way the game works is because it's all about action efficiency and timing. Yes. So let's say Alan here is clearly building a full house and we don't have it. We're going to completely back off that community because there's actually multiple communities, which I failed to mention back in the elevator. No problem. There's actually multiple communities. And Alan, he builds that to build a full house, but that means that he doesn't have time or cards to build the pot up. So then me and somebody else will go to the other community and we'll do it as a, let's say three of a kind. And so what might happen is that I could win 12 points on a three of a kind and Alan might only win two points on a full house. Yes, it's so good. Let me tell you some of my favorite times. Different schools of magic, I had the illusionist school mm -hmm. and that allowed me to play into a community, but with a face down card. So... Of course, I pretty much blitz that where I would just put face down so none of the other players even know what's in the flop, the turn, the river. They don't even know what's in there because it's face down. But their solution to that was as I was spending my time putting these cards face down, they would just build the other community and would pump up the points there. So by the time I had this perfect community, I got almost no points for it because I spent all my time. The other time was I had the straight flush and we built it together. So people didn't know, they were thinking, well, someone's probably gonna get the straight, someone probably has a flush, but let's hope no one has the straight flush, but I had it. <laughs> so I knew I had it. So my turn was, I just kept on playing points into that community pot. So I would win more points with that community. In the meantime, they're dicking around with the other communities and my turn, just throw another card in, throw another card in. And pretty soon they realized, 
crap. He just threw seven freaking cards into the pot there. <laughs> There's no way he doesn't have the straight flush. And sure enough, that just won me the game pretty much in one hand right there. It's an amazing game. It's entirely player driven. And that's why I think that's why it's a little bit challenging for some folks is because you actually decide everything. Yes. I will go ahead and say this bold statement. If you like Texas Hold'em and you're a gamer, this is your game. And here's the boldest thing I can probably say. Hocus is one of my favorite games ever, period. With that being said, Grant, how can people get a copy of their own right now? So they can go to hyperbolegames.com. We're selling it for $9.99 with $2 shipping. So basically for 12 bucks, you can get the game. How do you spell Hyperbole Games? H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E-G-A-M-E-S.com. Grant, if they want to know more about you, about your adventures, pimp yourself, sir. I do the Twitter, um, twitter.com slash hyperbolegrant, H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E-G-R-A-N-T. I mean, you could also email me if you ever want to chat about games. It's just grant at hyperbolegames.com, and that email is listed on my website if you don't want to remember it. Hey, thank you so much for coming, Grant. I'm Alan Gerding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R-Ding. You can find me at the tweets, at Alan Gerding. I'm on the Facebook. And if you want to email the show, please do. That's podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Follow us on the Twitter, at PlayTKG. And with that being said, this episode is... Finished! Nice, Next episode, Dice Tower Con. Tune in. Don't die, me babies. Do not die.